John chapter 4. We're going to be covering that in just a second. But uh, what we have here is Jesus Christ reminding the disciples about their need to be aware of the fact that there is a harvest Okay, and, and we're going to get into some of that kind of stuff. The, the reason we're doing it this summer uh, is because for those of you that are faithfully attending First Baptist Church, you know that every year we have a, a missions conference. We call it REACH Missions Conference. REACH is the missions ministry of this church, and we partner with a lot of foreign missionaries. And we typically have it every year in the fall. We've had it in early October. So um, October of last year was the last time we had our REACH conference, but this year... We're not going to have it in October. We're going to have a different Bible conference in October, but we're going to shift the REACH conference until about March of 2018. So there's going to be about an 18-month time between the conferences when we really focus on missions and we really bring in missionary guests and we do that sort of thing. Well, 18 months is a long time for me to go without talking about missions. So July is about nine months. We're about in the middle. So instead of having a big conference, what we're going to do is we're just going to be bringing in some guest speakers, and we're going to be talking about looking on the fields and getting a vision and an understanding of what God's doing globally and how that can impact us and what it is that we want to do. And so we're going to be looking in John chapter 4. Hopefully you found John chapter 4 in your Bibles. And John chapter 4 is that famous story, for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, of the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus is going, and he, and, he, and he does personal one-on-one evangelism. In fact, it's one of, the, one of the places in the Bible that if you want to study how to do personal evangelism one-on-one, you're going to go to John chapter 4, and you're going to see some of the things that Jesus does when he witnesses to somebody who needs him, right, on an individual personal level. And, uh, but what we're not going to do this morning is spend all the time studying that. We actually have a class that covers that in our ministry tools and training classes. We talk about evangelism and the, and the details of how to pull that off. But really what I want us to look at today is the reaction of the disciples as a result of this whole event. What I want to look at is what Jesus ultimately turns and teaches the disciples, the pre-existing believers, who are kind of in the middle of this whole story. And so the theme of all that we'll look at, and I'll make reference to a lot in John chapter 4, is just verse number 35. And if you'll just notice with me, verse number 35 is where we're going to land, where it says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And so what I want to do is help us to better understand what exactly this means. And so the best way to do that, I think, is just to break down the Scriptures the way the Lord intends for us to break down the Scriptures. Those who have taken the class on how to study the Bible systematically know that there are three applications to all passages of Scripture, right? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at all the three different applications of Scripture. And so our first point of study today, point number one, is we're going to look at it historically. We're going to look at John chapter 4 historically considered. Now, if you're not aware, the historical application of the Scripture is is just the teaching, the understanding that what is written in the Scripture is a literally, historically accurate account of a real event that actually took place in history. Unless Jesus says this is a parable, I mean, this is a real, literal story, so this actually happened. And what's going on, the backstory in John chapter 4, is that it says in the first few verses that the Pharisees came to realize that Jesus, and not actually Jesus, but the disciples of Jesus, 
actually were baptizing more people than John the Baptist, who would have been very well known at that time. And so the Pharisees, the religious zealots who yet were empty on the inside and interested in controlling their own religious manipulations of their own kingdom, they were getting wind of this fact like, hey, this Jesus guy's getting some traction. And so you know they were going to go want to hang around him and, and, you know, check him out and see what they could figure out. What does Jesus do when he finds out that the Pharisees realize that Jesus is getting some traction and some following? He's like, yeah, we got to get out of here. And so it says in the first few verses that Jesus said, well, we have to leave Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, and we're going to go way up north to the region of Galilee. And it says in verse number 4 of John chapter 4 that he said that he must needs go through Samaria. Now that's going to be significant because on a direct line from Judea to Galilee is Samaria. But Samaria is a place that typically the Jews would not go. And we'll see that in just a second. And so that is kind of a weird deal. And why did he say the disciples must be wondering? Why did he say I must go through Samaria? Did they know? Well, let's take a look. As they began to journey, and with all understanding, odds are, right, they're traveling on foot. Uh, the distance from Jerusalem to Sychar, which is the city where they finally stop at Jacob's well, and he meets the woman at the well, which is in Samaria, by the way, would be roughly 60 miles. So that's a good long journey. We don't know how long it took them, but it's about halfway to Galilee. And verse number 8 says that, Jesus basically was tired. They had stopped for a moment, and they sat down at a well, and they rested. And the disciples then go into the city to buy some meat. They go in to buy some food so that they can get some energy and then eventually continue their journey. Well, from verses 7 to verse 26, and you check this out on your own time, from verse 7 to verse 26 is the story of the interaction of Jesus Christ with the woman at the well. And so Jesus deals with her one-on-one, and ultimately she believes. She understands who Jesus really is, and she puts her faith and trust in him. If you're interested in some of the keys of evangelism, you can just jot these down in the margin. First off, Jesus initiated the conversation. He didn't just wait for her to ask, right? He goes up and he asks her to give him something to drink, which in that culture would have been a sign that he was offering friendship. So he wanted to leverage a personal relationship into a gospel opportunity, which got her attention. It worked. She was now willing to listen because, wow, that was unusual. And what does he do? He very quickly turns the conversation from physical circumstances to spiritual reality, okay, in about verse number 10. And then in the middle of that section, about verses 15, 16, 17, 18, he addresses the issue of her sin. And you know well that the story is that she had many husbands and The man she was with was not even her husband. And and so Jesus reveals the fact that she's a sinner as we all need to understand that we're all sinners. And ultimately through all that, he reveals who he is. There's some interaction between them. You can read it. He reveals who he is in verse number 26. And so she comes to the point where she surrenders to that. Now what I want to focus on as we look is What's going on in the life of the disciples? While this whole interaction with the woman at the well is going on, the disciples are not there. They went into town to get some food, right? Historically, this is what's going on. So letter A in your notes, we want to look at the disciples' misunderstanding. The disciples' misunderstanding. Because in verse number 27, they come back. It says, Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? So they return 
And they're, they're just blown away. They're shocked. Jesus Christ, a Jewish male, is sitting alone and talking to a Samaritan female. Unheard of. I mean, this would be a real cultural no-no for the Jews. They never did such a thing. So what they saw was, and this is in your notes, Jesus does something culturally wrong, but biblically right. He does something that doesn't jive with the norms of their cultural practice. I must go through Samaria, and I must talk to this woman of Samaria, let alone a man of Samaria. He's talking to a woman, which really would have stretched their cultural comfort level. And they realize, wow, what is he doing? We don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews actually despised the Samaritans who were half-breed Jews, Gentiles. And so they would typically, if they were making a journey from Jerusalem to Galilee, go way out of their way to go around Samaria so that the soles of their feet didn't even touch Samaritan soil. That's the level of disdain and despise they had for these people. And what do they see? They see Jesus interacting with this woman. But it says, nobody asked him nothing. Can you imagine what they were thinking? They're like, does he know that we're not supposed to do this? But he's Jesus. I'm not saying nothing. You say something. I'm not saying nothing. You know that's what they were thinking. No man dared say anything. But here's what they were thinking of saying, right? The Bible tells us. Does he need something? I mean, is there something that he needs that we can't provide that he's got to ask a Samaritan woman? Or why in the world is he talking to her? So they're just blown away. That's... This is their misunderstanding. So, so, you know, they come in at the tail end of this thing and, you know, awkward. <laughs> and so the woman's like, uh, yeah, I'm tapping out. And she goes back to town. So she's believing and she's going to go tell people back in town about she just met the Messiah. So, you know, she leaves. <sighs> the tension is released. The disciples are now just with Jesus, right? And she's out. By the way, While she's out telling everybody, she's all excited about her newfound faith. Don't you love being around brand new believers in Jesus Christ? I mean, isn't it amazing? Let me talk to us older believers in Jesus. Isn't it amazing how somehow through the years and years and years of enjoying fellowship with Christ, we forget to get excited and tell other people? Isn't that crazy? But a brand new believer in Jesus Christ, what do they know? Well, they don't know nothing except, I got new life! And they run and tell everybody, I got new life! Oh, and they still have lost friends, by the way. This this is good preaching, y'all. Seriously, you ought to give me something on this. This is good stuff. (laughs) It's not even in my notes. When I get away from my notes, I mean, there's no telling. (laughs) So she's doing that, man. I mean, she's rocking the house back home, and what happens is this whole crowd of people now are like, really? Well, let's go check. So there's a whole crowd of people who are now going to go back to see Jesus. Who is this guy? But now that she's gone... And they're like, I don't know, say nothing. Well, they start to have a dialogue with him, starting in verse 31, and they're like, hey, master, eat. In other words, hey, we went and did what you asked us to do. We got some food, and 
here's the food and have something to eat. And Jesus basically says in the next verse, well, I've already got my meat. And of course, he's shifting the conversation to another meaning, but they're, you know, they're like, I mean, we're in the desert. You can see as far as the horizon. There's nobody, how, where'd you get your food? You know, who else brought you food, right? Well, the disciples had their misunderstanding, and Jesus is trying to teach them his thing, so letter B in your notes is Jesus' mission. And he says in verse 34, right, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In other words, I already have the thing that really sustains me. I've already got that. In other words, Jesus didn't live to eat. He lived to do the will of God. That's what he lived to do. And so he's taking this opportunity and he's teaching the disciples something. And, and since they didn't get it, he decided to turn it into a teaching opportunity. So what I want you to notice in your notes is that Jesus uses questions to focus their attention. He does that all the time, doesn't he? In fact, when you're reading through the scriptures and you find Jesus interacting with people, frequently he uses questions, a good tactic, by the way. The good use of questions draws people into the conversation to help them to really pay attention to what is going on. And so he goes with verse 35 with a question where he says, don't you guys say that there's four months and then comes the harvest? Don't you guys say that? And so what's going on here, historically, we're considering this historically right, well, the odds are, and we don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't specifically say, that what they were dealing with in the primary crop of that time would have been wheat or barley. And typically, the wheat and barley harvesting season would be about, you know, April or May. And so if it's four months until the harvest, well, then they're probably making this journey in December or January. And so Jesus says, don't you guys say that there's four months and then comes the harvest? And, and so, you know, that, that kind of gets their attention right. And because according to the calendar, and here's the key we're going to get to, it's not yet time. For, in other words, don't you guys say that there's a harvest coming, but not now, not now, right? But he corrects their thinking. I love when Jesus does this. So he goes in verse 35, he says, Say not ye, and then he goes on and he says, Behold, I say unto you, and I'm going to correct your thinking. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. In other words, quit focusing right here. Quit looking down. Quit looking at your immediate circumstances. Lift up your eyes and look outward. Look farther beyond where your immediate set of circumstances take you right now. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. What is a field in the context of a harvest well, there's not just one stalk of barley or one stalk of wheat. There's a whole bunch of wheats, can I say it that way, gathered together in a bunch. There's a whole field of wheat growing to get lift up your eyes and look on the fields because they're white already to harvest. And the idea of turning white, meaning they are so ripe 
if you don't go harvest them quickly, they're going to rot on the stalk. You won't be able to get benefit. You won't be able to actually harvest them and then use them for meal. You won't be able to do it. So man, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They are white, all ready to harvest. In a literal, historical, physical conversation, they must have been confused because it's December. What fields? There's nothing. It's still four more months until that time. So they may be curious about this overripe wheat or barley. But what do they do? If they looked up from where they were, if they lifted up their eyes and looked, you know what they would have saw? They would have saw crowds of Samaritans coming from the city as a result of the witness of this woman coming to Jesus Christ. And that's the lesson he's trying to get through. Lift up your, quit worrying about food. Quit worrying about me. Quit worrying about culture. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And they may be thinking wheat. They look and what do they see? Crowds, fields of people coming to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. The harvest he's saying is ready now. You don't have to wait four more months, right? So that's literally what was going on in the story. So what is the ultimate teaching? So the second point is we're going to consider it doctrinally. We considered it historically. Another application of Scripture is a doctrinal application of Scripture. And typically, frequently, the doctrinal application of Scripture, doctrine simply means teaching. The doctrinal application of Scripture is typically prophetic. It typically points to something yet future, okay? So the ultimate fulfillment of John chapter 4 is going to be in the millennial kingdom. It's going to be after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because anytime Jesus Christ shows up on earth, the kingdom is offered. Amen? Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And another reference in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, and saying time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And so Jesus shows up, he begins his earthly ministry, and what does he do? He offers to them the kingdom, and the kingdom will ultimately be fulfilled. At this time, we didn't know yet because some things had to happen. Would they receive him? We'll get to that. But ultimately, we know now since Israel's rejection, it's postponed a couple thousand years and will be fulfilled at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand the doctrinal teaching, you have to understand this next thing that I put in your notes. It has always been God's plan to reach all the nations. You have to know that. And you might think it's intuitive, but you might not. What I'm going to do, and if you look in your notes, you'll notice I got about 187 Bible references there. And you're looking at your watch thinking, dang, I'm going to grill some barbecue this afternoon. I don't know. What I'm going to do is do a really quick flyby. And, and you might, you know, might want to just kind of put your pencils down and just listen. And let, just get yourself the flavor of what God's trying to communicate as I give you a just kind of a running overview of God's message throughout the Old Testament leading up until this time when Jesus finally arrived. So you go back 
And you start with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where God gives this great unconditional promise that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Then it's passed on to his son Isaac in Genesis 26.4 where it changes from all the families of the earth to all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And from Isaac it passes on to Jacob in Genesis 27.29 where basically the same promise given to Abraham is repeated. With Moses, it's passed on, and I've, I've referenced Exodus 9, 13 to 16, basically just the, 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 the plagues and the miracles that God did through Moses, it says, were a testimony for the whole world of the power and the majesty of Jehovah God. Similarly, that story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, David beating Goliath, his fame was broadcast throughout all the world. God did the things that he did throughout the Old Testament, why? So that all the nations would ultimately realize that he is the one and only God, the Lord of all lords. And so the nation of Israel finally works their way through their progression of growth and they're at their pinnacle under King Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verses 6 through 9, you have that story, which is a great example. The Queen of Sheba, which would be southern Saudi Arabia, comes to visit Solomon, a great picture of the millennial kingdom. And the idea is, is that all the nations start coming now to Solomon, a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn of the majesty of their God who is able to do these amazing things through this nation of chosen people, Israel. And so God is setting the stage and God is working through all these things. I want you to just listen. I'm going to read a bunch of verses quickly. I'm going to paraphrase and just hit a few phrases throughout the Psalms. Psalm 911, declare among the people his doings. Notice the audience he's shooting for. Psalm 1849, therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, 67, 1 through 5, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health, where? Among all nations, not just among Israel. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Selah. 96.3, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. 96.10, say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. Some people think the Old Testament is just about Israel. They weren't paying attention. 72.11, yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. 105.1, make known his deeds among the people. 117.1, oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people. God has always intended to reach all the nations. Isaiah 42.1-6, among there it says, behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. He's talking about Jesus Christ, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Jews. No, to the Gentiles. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, will hold thine hand, will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Aren't you thankful for that Gentile church? I am. Verse 45, chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. 49.6, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Kind of sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? 55.5-7, five Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God. And for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Notice, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. By the way, that's really good advice for anybody. 
if he's given you breath and the opportunity to hear his voice today, don't postpone your decision. Man, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, because tomorrow, well, you just don't know. You just don't know. Chapter 60 and verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, hallelujah, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. 66, 18, And it shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And going down to the end of verse 19, And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. 66, 23, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Clearly, our God has a global mission. Even in the Old Testament, it was never exclusively for Israel. Israel was to be the messenger. Israel was to be the one as the chosen people of God to take God's message and bring it to all the world. Now we know they didn't do a great job, did they? But that was God's plan. God's plan was never just to be the God of Israel. He was known as the God of Israel among the other nations who did not yet know him, but he intended to be the God of everyone. And let me just tell you something. The disciples of Jesus Christ at the time of John chapter 4 would have absolutely certainly known that this scenario that I just reminded you of through the Old Testament would indeed eventually come. Don't you say that there's four months and eventually we're going to have a harvest? They knew that eventually Israel would be the head of all nations, worshiping Jehovah Lord. They knew that all these things would take place under the guidance of their Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 says that. For unto us a child is born. We read that Christmas, right? Unto us a son is given. Tell us about this son. Tell us about this child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Did y'all notice that the son who is a child is also the father? Did you see that? Did you see that the one who's coming is the son? Oh, and he's also the father? How is that possible? Oh, he's the mighty God. Oh, okay, well then, well then all bets are off. <laughs> he can do anything, right? Because he's the mighty God. And it says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The disciples certainly knew that there would be a day, eventually, one day, eventually, sometime in the future, don't know when, this is going to happen. And according to verse 25, actually, back in John chapter 4, even the Samaritan woman knew that. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he has come, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. I mean, even the Samaritan, listen, you know the disciples knew that, right? They knew that. So then, now, you ready? Our theme verse, verse 35. Say not ye, four months, and then the harvest comes. In other words, you recognize that there's going to be a harvest of nations. This is the doctrinal 
prophetic teaching of John chapter 4. There will be a harvest of nations just later, eventually, someday. But I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields because they are white already to harvest. In the context of the prophesied and coming kingdom, the millennial 1,000-year kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's like, look, guys, quit thinking this is always something someday, whenever. Lift up your eyes now. Don't you realize? Look, Samaritans are coming to me right now. Right now. Quit saying someday. Someday has arrived. Someday has finally arrived. The Samaritans are coming. This is the beginning of the harvest of all the nations. Didn't he say the kingdom is at hand? It's unfolding right in front of them. But before that really takes place, Israel has to receive Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah because they ultimately are going to be the evangelists to take it to the world. So in Matthew 10 and verse number 5, when Jesus finally calls his disciples and he sends them out and he calls them apostles for the first time that he tells them very clearly, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't do it. Mm -mm. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who you're going to. And you say, well, that sounds contradictory. No, it's not at all contradictory. All he's trying to say is we've got to get Israel on board so then Israel becomes the vehicle through which I'll work to get the gospel to everybody. So we're going to start with you, Israel. You have to receive me first, and then we'll take it as a light unto all the world. Luke chapter 10, first few verses, says the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. So they were to go out, and they were to declare the truth. The Messiah has come. But when the invited Jews that were presented this truth of their Messiah live in the flesh in front of them, when that was ultimately refused, and they refused to respond to God's free invitation for them to enter into the blessing God promised for them, well, then he had to shift gears, right? And Luke 14 talks about that time in verses 23 and 24 and says, The Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. In other words, if the, if the invited guests won't come, well then go out into all the world and just compel anybody to come. Why? That my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And because historically we're at a time where Israel's free will response is not yet known, what we have in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus gives the hint that there might be a postponement. Look with me in verse number 40. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Hmm. And it says in verse number 43, Now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. And in verse 45 it says, Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast for they also went into the feast. So what do we have as a hint of this doctrinal prophetic postponement? Well, 
If Israel refuses to respond to the Lord's offer at that time, then the kingdom itself is going to be postponed and Jesus is going to hang around with the Gentiles for two days. Do you all remember 2 Peter chapter 3 with a day with the Lord is how long? A thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. How many years has it been since Christ lived and died and rose again? About 2,000 years. About two days Jesus hung with the Gentiles. And after two days, he went on to Galilee to be with the Jews, doctrinally the tribulation, to get them ready to ultimately then in Galilee, what did the Jews do? They gladly received him. Do you know what's going to happen in the tribulation after all the trouble that happens? There's going to be a significant population of Israel where the Bible says in Romans 11 that all Israel shall be saved. And they're going to turn to their Messiah. And they're going to finally receive him. But he hints at this postponement. That is the doctrinal understanding of John chapter 4. Okay, well, that's really cool, I think. I think that's pretty interesting. But what does that really mean for me today? What does that really mean for you today? Because this is really where we want to live, right? I mean, what can I apply to my life now? So our last point, those of you are tracking, you know it's going to be practically considered. We saw it historically considered, doctrinally considered. There are three applications of Scripture, a historical application, a doctrinal application, and a practical application. What is written historically is accurate. What is written doctrinally is the teaching specifically that he's trying to communicate to us about all time and eternity. Yet the practical application is very personal, sometimes called the devotional application. This is the application of Scripture that says, what does this mean to me? How is this going to help me tomorrow when I get up and go to work? How is this practically and personally applicable to my life today? So let's just go directly to our theme verse. Let's just go directly to verse number 35, where it says, hey, don't you typically say there's four months and then comes the harvest? So practically speaking, and I put this in your notes, I really hope you get this. As a general principle, time is required between sowing and reaping. You ever notice that? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I've planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Right? I mean, it typically takes time for that. One guy sows the seed, and he goes out, and he witnesses to people. He shares the word with somebody, but, you know, they don't respond right away. And so then somebody else comes along and talks to him at their job and their home and their family or whatever. Somebody bumps into somebody, and they're literally watering the seed, and if that ultimately grows into a fruitful plant, if the people actually finally respond, well, it's the Lord ultimately who gets the glory. It's the Lord who does it. We don't do anything. But some plant, and then later on, some water, and then eventually you'll have increase. That presupposes that there takes time, right, between the sowing and the reaping. But what did Jesus just do? He just met a woman, and he just shared with her, and immediately reaped. In this case, there was no time between the sowing and the reaping. In this case, he's trying to teach them, look, don't you typically always think, well, you know, you talk to people, you do what you can, and, you know, maybe eventually they'll believe. I don't know. He's like, look, guys, seriously, stop it. I say unto you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. It is possible. Look at all these Samaritans. She is now bringing a huge crowd of Samaritans here. It is possible 
for somebody to hear the gospel one time and get saved. This week marks my wife's 25th spiritual birthday. It's pretty cool. It was early July of 1992 when a group of men from Decatur Baptist Church, where I was a member, we went to Albania and began to share the gospel with a nation full of people that was the only officially legislated in the Constitution atheist nation on the face of the planet. These people have never one time had access to the gospel, and we began to just share the gospel. And the very first time my wife ever heard the gospel, the first week of July, 25 years ago, she got saved. You know, what, you know what that means? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. There's not always a long time between sowing and reaping. You possibly can sow and reap right away. My story is the same. I, you know, you always say, well, what about the pagan in the deepest, darkest corners of some country that nobody's ever heard of and have never heard the gospel? Well, I was the pagan in the dark corners of the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> and I never heard the gospel. And when I heard it for the very first time in my life, I believed it and got saved. And in our ministry in Albania, for example, there's a whole country full of people who had never heard the gospel. And in the first few months, people were getting saved like crazy, having heard it only one time. It's possible, y'all. It's absolutely possible. It's possible for people to not necessarily have to. Now, some people need time to think it over, and that's fine. That's fine. That's their business. I'm just telling you, don't keep thinking... Don't you always seem to think, well, four months and maybe, I don't know, eventually. Stop thinking that way. I'm telling you now, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields because they are white already to harvest. That's what Jesus is teaching. Lift up your eyes now, y'all, 2017. Look on the fields now because they are ready right now to be harvested after telling them only one time. Do you realize there's a lot of places around this world today that have never one time heard a clear presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And somebody's got to take it to them. Somebody's got to take it to them. As a young Christian, I'm, I'm going on almost 35 years of being saved, and I'm so thankful for that. So shortly after I was saved, I would have sat in a church like this and heard a message like this. And I would have made a decision. Look, Lord, I, you know, I don't know much. I ain't got much to offer, but whatever it is, I'm all in. I'm all in. Take me if you can use me. I would much, I made a clear decision early on in my Christian life. Now, it took years to come to fulfillment. But I made the decision then. Listen, I would rather do whatever I can to help get the gospel to people who have never had the chance one time to hear it than to give all my time and effort and resources to keep taking it to the same people over and over and over and over who are dull of hearing and don't care. That was my choice. And the Lord worked it out. Listen, man, you have the opportunity for God to use you in that way because he is working. Go back to your notes. As a result of those things, God prepares people and sends missionaries. Right? Notice Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is God talking to Ezekiel after he tells Ezekiel, you're going back to Israel. I want you to preach to Israel. 
They're a stiff-necked people. They're hard-headed. I'm going to make your head harder than their head. And you're going to butt heads with them. So can I say Ezekiel was a butthead? I don't know. Okay, so he, he's like, it's going to be hard, and they're not going to listen, and it's going to be awful, and you're going to preach, but I'm going to use you, but don't worry, but they're not going to listen. Verse 5, God says to Ezekiel, Thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words thou canst not understand. Notice, surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. Do you realize when God calls missionaries to go to foreign places with strange speech and a hard language, if God is the one doing the calling, he has already prepared the people. They only need somebody to show up and just say the words. So, hungry team, fear not what you're about to do. God has prepared the way. Just go and open your mouth wide and let God fill it. He will use you. Because if he sends us to them, surely they'll receive it. Not everybody. There will be a harvest. So for the next five or six weeks, I've invited guest speakers. And they're going to come, and each one of these guys is going to have particular experience in his area of the world. And the theme is our theme. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And I want you to recognize what God is doing around the world. You know, the book of Lamentations says that my eye affects my heart. And if you will see a glimpse of what God's doing around the world, you'll never be the same. So I have some goals for you, and I put those in your notes. And certainly through this summer, we want to help facilitate you lifting up your eyes and looking on the fields that are white unto the harvest. And as a result, hopefully you'll pray more. But if you're going to pray effectively, you need to pray with understanding. So we're going to try and bring you some, un some better understanding. Hopefully you'll give more. Hopefully you'll sacrificially consider how you budget your family finances and whether or not you feel like you are appropriately investing in things that matter. And maybe there's room, and I'm certain there is room, for all of us to consider, you know, a little less luxury and a little more gospel. Uh, hopefully, right, you're going to be more motivated to participate here, to get involved in the harvest right here, right now. Because if we can't do it here, then, I mean, why are we even thinking about going anywhere else? Hopefully, you'll commit to go and see the world and take a mission trip. Hopefully you'll, before your life is, I pray that everybody takes the opportunity, if you're physically able to get on a plane and to go somewhere into a foreign land and see what God is doing around the world, you will never be the same. If you will just go and see at some point in your life, it will help facilitate these other goals. And hopefully some of you, probably a minority, right? But some of you will surrender your entire lives to go permanently and live your life in another land and give your life so that those people can know the Lord Jesus Christ to help reap the harvest of the nations 
that God has prepared. Look at verse number 36. Jesus goes on after verse 35 and he says, notice, he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. So look, let's get involved in reaping now. Why? Because you receive rewards. Why? Because people live forever. So that both those that sow and those that reap can rejoice together. If there's no sowing of the seed, then there will be no reaping. There's nothing to grow. But if there's no one that will go to try to reap, well then, what is the sowing? What, what good is it? We need both. We need people to be involved in whatever it is the Lord has for us to do. So can I encourage you? Do whatever you can, wherever you are. But don't forget what time it is. We're in the last days, y'all. The two days are about over. And Jesus is about to turn back to Israel. Time is about up. You know what that means? Here's your notes. Last thing I got for you. Since we're at the end of time, now's the time for reaping. I mean, really, I'm not saying don't continue to sow. Continue to sow because you never know. You could reap instantly. But for sure, because we are at the end, we are going to have a harvest right before the end. There are going to be people who will be getting saved right in the nick of time, right before Jesus comes back. There will be people who will respond. Man, let's get involved in the reaping. Let's get involved in the fields. Let's expect that God will work. We'll expect that people will respond and believe. We need participants. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight, and among the things we'll pray for, we'll pray for that as well. Let's all pray together now. And Lord Jesus, as we come before you, I just want to ask you, first and foremost, that you would forgive us where we have been staring intently on our little circle of circumstances. Pray that you'd forgive us for thinking that while we agree that eventually it's all going to happen, praise the Lord, it's all going to happen, that's eh, sometime out in the future. And then we don't do anything. Forgive us for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us through what we've heard today to lift up our eyes and to look on the fields.